Good morning, church. This morning we're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. If you want to go there in your Bibles, again, that's Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." This is the word of the Lord. There are a number of different metaphors for life. You may even have a favorite metaphor. I know there are a number of churches even that have like journey in the name where like life is a journey. And, and it is. Life is a journey in the sense that like we have a destination and really you can only get there by taking the next step and then the next and the next. So life is a journey. Life is a canvas, I've heard, you know, a blank canvas. You get, to, you get to paint your own master artwork. And people will say it's, it's a mosaic. There are all these little pieces, and they start getting put together, and they start forming a cohesive picture of something. Or we'll say life is a puzzle. You know, it's an enigma. It's a maze. Or life is a game of chess, you know, meaning that each move you make has this cascade of new possibilities, but also eliminates other possibilities as you make each one. I've heard life is like an onion, you know, has all these layers that you peel back and you get deeper and deeper and closer and closer to the core of this thing. And of course, famously, life is like a box of chocolates. You all could finish that with me because you never know what you're going to get. Well, the text we come to this morning, Paul is saying not only that life is like a battle, he says life is a battle. And if you're going to be successful in any battle, and I'm thinking of actual warfare, you're going to have to know certain things. You're going to have to know something about the enemy that you're facing. What is their capability? Who are they? What is the source and nature of the conflict between you? What's the best way to protect yourself? What's the best way to actually go on the offensive and fight back? What are that enemy's weaknesses? What constitutes winning? Like, how do you know that you're gaining ground and being more successful instead of losing? What would that look like? And the Apostle Paul here says life is a battle. He says it's an all-out war. And then with these 10 verses, he shows us a number of different things, like who you're up against, what it's going to take to win. I want to just give you this simple theme from this text this morning 
Paul's saying the, the Christian life is a battle. It is. But we share in God's victory by availing ourselves of God's resources. And that's what we're going to see throughout this text is that God, in a sense, has already won this battle. You're in it. You're in the thick of it. But you have won and you win in real time by availing yourselves of God's resources. So Paul shows us these, these four things that we're going to walk through this morning. He shows us something about our adversary. He, so, he shows us something about our armor and armament, and I'll explain that when we come to it. Number three, he shows us our ability. And number four, he shows us our actions. So we start with our adversary. And if we weren't in this text this morning and we hadn't already sung the songs that we sang this morning, and I just came to you, or we just were sitting down for coffee or lunch or something, and I said, who do you, who do you instinctively think of as your adversary? Or, like, who are your enemies? Who's making life miserable for you? Who's the person or who are the group, who's the group of people about whom you think life would be so much better without them? They're what's wrong with society. And you know we live in a society where we love to do this. We point across the aisle, and the aisle could represent politics, it could represent cultural and social issues, but we love to point to that other group of people over there believing and doing those horrible things, and, and they're pointing right back at us and others, and we're each saying they are the adversary, they are the problem, and I want to say these, these are not rhetorical questions. As you think of conflict in your life, as you think of the struggle, the wrestling that you have to do, the grappling that you have to do, we naturally think things like this. The problem is your boss. The problem is your ex. The problem is that political figure or that political party. We think the problem is the people who are pushing that particular ideology or that particular agenda. They are causing all kinds of conflict. Or if some of you are honest with yourselves, you would say, like, that particular demographic of people just grates on me. I don't like people who are guilty of or who participate in, and then we, we fill it in. And by the way, I just want to acknowledge that may be real with your boss and those people. I don't doubt that there are people in your life that cause conflict, that cause problems for you, that cause pain. And I don't doubt that it feels like, because it is like, part of your struggle is with him or her or them. Paul could have said the same thing. He could have said, my battle it's against these other Jewish religious leaders who will simply not open their Old Testament and see how it testifies of Christ as the Messiah. Like Jesus showed me, now I see it so clearly. I'm sharing this good news. It's obvious, but they, they war against me. They argue against me. They, they turn me over to the Romans. Now the Romans are a problem because they have the power to actually incarcerate me, which Paul is writing this letter probably under house arrest. He's imprisoned some way. So he, he could say, yeah, my struggles with these people too, with these groups, with these demographics, with that race of people. But instead, he writes this in verse 12. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Now, Paul's not actually dismissing that we have interpersonal conflict, but he's saying your ultimate adversary, the one that's really behind everything that causes you chaos and struggle is spiritual, number one. What I mean by spiritual is like immaterial. We, we tend to see that flesh and blood person or those people or, or that physical manifestation of an ideology and we say that, he, her, they, that's the problem. That's my struggle. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. There is a spiritual being who is dead set against God and God's will in this world. And that's who your real struggle is with. Here, the scripture calls him the devil, diabolos, from which we get our word diabolical. Okay? Um, so Paul, right out of the gate, is saying your, your ultimate battle, your, your truest battle, if I could put it that way, is not with that person, that group, that tribe, but it's with the devil and his minions. So the enemy's spiritual. Number two, the enemy's deceitful. Verse 11. Notice we're warned about the devil's schemes. It's a word methodeia. And in Greek, if I hear the word method, in Greek this word meant not just a method, not just a strategy, but it literally meant a method or strategy that is meant to deceive. The name devil, by the way, means slanderer, which is a form of deception. When you slander someone, you're lying about their character. You're lying about their actions. The devil loves to do that. He loves to accuse believers of things that they're not guilty of or things that Christ has already covered and forgiven. You know, in John 8, Jesus himself calls the devil a liar and the father of lies. By the way, the first time we encounter this character in the Bible story, Genesis chapter 3, the the third chapter of the entire Bible, introduces us to this character. And what is he doing? He's slandering God and he's deceiving the first woman who ever lived. He's coming to her in a garden and he dresses himself up as, well, a snake, which I don't think is beautiful, but we weren't afraid of snakes yet. We didn't have any association. It was just a beautiful creature in a garden saying something like, Hey, Eve, you can trust me. Trust me. God has warned you that this thing would harm you. But do you know this thing that he's warned you about, it's not going to hurt you. In fact, it's, it's really the key to your satisfaction. And ever since, the devil's been telling the same lie. And I want to pause for just a second there. What are you potentially deceived about? And I realize by, the na- by, by virtue of the nature of deception, you may be like, well, <laughs> how would I know? What am I potentially deceived about? But I, I at least want to open the door to possibility that we have a humility of life that we think if the adversary, the devil, is deceptive, if he's scheming, manipulative, conniving, a slanderer, a liar, is it possible that I am deceived about something? That he has tricked me to believe something that is not true, that he's tricked me to call something evil that's actually good and to call something good that's actually evil, that's very possible. And we want to, later as we'll see in this text, arm ourselves against that possibility of deception. So the enemy's spiritual, he is deceptive. Number three, he's powerful, verse 12. Notice words like rulers, authorities, cosmic 
powers. And the point is not to, to go to this text and be like, okay, what is the exact hierarchy and the ranking that he's suggesting here with these four or five or six different terms? The idea is just your adversary is a force to be reckoned with. I mean, there are earthly authorities, there are human authorities and rulers that have way more power than you and I do. They have the authority, they have the power, they could falsely accuse us, they could convict us, they could imprison us, they could kill us if they wanted to. That's earthly human powers. But Paul uses this word here, cosmocrator, which is cosmos, like universe. Crator, which means those who seize or hold hostage. And he's like, these demons, these devils are so powerful they have taken the, the creation of God captive. They're powerful. And I don't want us to overlook that. It'd just be like, well, I'm in Christ. I'm good. No, no, no. They're far more powerful than you and I standing in our own strength. Fourthly, the enemy is evil. Also, verse 12, he uses this word evil, and he says they've introduced this evil day. The word there simply means depraved or harmful one commentator says the essence of evil is the shifting of God-given boundaries. Like you saw it from the beginning in the garden. Like God's like, I give you everything. Like you literally have no boundaries at all except for this one thing. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. And notice what, what is Satan's first deception is to shift the boundary. It's to be like, God's lying to you. That's, that's not going to harm you. That's, that's going to do beautiful and amazing things to make you wise and to bring you endless satisfaction forever. He shifts the boundary. And family, over and over again, we see where our culture, just like every previous culture, shifts the boundaries. And, and I'm not talking about shifting the boundaries from traditional thought or family values. I'm talking about shifting the boundaries from what Scripture clearly says, God says, I give you these parameters. And those parameters, it's like in parenting, it's like the, the parameters are there for your good. They're, they're to protect you. They're to enhance your flourishing and your enjoyment of the gifts I've given you. And, and just naturally we think, no, parameters are bad. So we're surrounded in our culture by divisive conflict, by harm to others and self-harm. I mean, I heard about two more mass shootings yesterday, and I'm just like, do we not see that there's some kind of demonic adversarial thing behind that, ultimately? And I'm not, I'm not arguing for or against public policy. I would argue for public policy, by the way, but that's, that's not my argument here. My, my argument is like, we see evil in our world. We see conflict and division and strife and lying and twisting of everything good. And I look at, like, the Joker in the Batman movies who just loves to, to sow chaos and wreak havoc and then just step back and laugh as the world burns. That's our adversary. That's the kind of evil that he's engaged in. And one more thing, the enemy's vicious, verse 16. Um, verse 16 makes a reference to a very common war tactic back in that day when Paul was writing this, which is as these armies are generally just lined up in rows, just going to be killed or to kill. From a distance, you could take these flaming arrows and you could launch them at your enemy. And the first way you kill them is like simply you, you penetrate their body with an arrow. But if you can't do that, 
You can set things around them on fire, which spreads panic, which creates chaos and spreads a widespread death. And what Paul's saying here is in the same way, the devil is launching flaming arrows at you and at me, arrows of temptation and accusation and deception and shame. He wants to sow chaos, viciously sow confusion, and his ultimate aim is to kill you. Like, not, not just to kill your physical body, like set your body with disease or something, but he wants to steal away from you the life that is yours in God and separate you from God forever. This is our adversary, okay? So I understand much of our culture today doesn't believe in devils. They're like, if I can't see it, it's not real. And it's like, it's like so many things, like I, I don't... I don't believe in gravity because I don't see it. Well, you see the effects of it. We depend on the effects of it. We see so many effects of something evil. And it's not this joke of like this little red cartoon character sitting on this shoulder with the pitchfork, like do the bad thing. And then the little other characters over here with the halo, like do the good thing. And you're like, oh man, I don't know what to do because the guy with the pitchfork is telling me to do the bad thing. And I think there's, we, we, we walk this line in the Christian life of not underestimating our enemy. We don't want to overestimate him either. We don't want to attribute, it's like you can't attribute everything that happens in your life that's bad and be like, well, that was the devil. I mean, the devil's not omnipresent. He's not. He, he, he's a being. He has to be somewhere. He's not like God. He is somewhere. He has limited knowledge, but a lot of knowledge. You know, yesterday as I'm thinking through this, um, setting up our hockey goal for the boys to start shooting on the driveway, and this one big heavy metal tube just falls right on my toenail. And I just wanted to be like, that is the devil? Um, but it's not. And my point is like, don't, don't overestimate the devil like he's everywhere and every little bad thing that happens to you, but we do need to understand him. And we do need to understand his power so that we can then move to point two, which is our armor and our armament. I use those two words on purpose. Armor is protective. Armor is what you think of as defensive. Armament is offensive. So you think of like the M1 Abrams tank, those steel and ceramic plates that cover it as a heat shield and a protection against you know, other missiles or whatever. That's armor. That 120 millimeter gun that's on the front on that turret, that's armament. And Paul shows us we need both. So let's just walk through this. And I want you to notice, first of all, that this armor is called multiple times in this text, the armor of God. Most obviously, that means the armor that God provides for us. But here's an interesting note. It's actually more than that. It's the armor that God himself wears. I don't have time for all of this this morning. It's one of those interesting like kind of side details. But if you turn to texts like Isaiah 11 and then Isaiah 59, particularly verse 17, you'll see that God himself has a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. So it's not just something that he has here in a storeroom and he's like, here, you're going to need this. It's like, this is the armor that God uses to be God. And he's like, here, put this on. Okay. I also want to point out, Paul could have just said, 
put on truth, put on righteousness, put on readiness, put on faith, take hold of salvation, take hold of the gospel, and it would have meant exactly the same thing as what he does say. I think this extended metaphor, though, looking at the, can we put it up there, looking at a typical Roman soldier and how a typical Roman soldier dressed, that's what Paul's probably looking at every day as he's under house arrest and he's chained to this guy, and he's just like, you know, we're in a battle, and I'm going to help them remember these different pieces that we need to fight this battle and to be successful in life. So starting with verse 14, the belt of truth. Now the belt was this leather strap around his waist that had these other leather straps covered in metal hanging down in the front. The, the leather belt, when he actually went to run or he went to do battle, he could take his longer garments and tuck them in so that they're out of the way. They're not cumbersome. They're not tripping him up. You'll notice the, the leather belt is also the thing that would hold his sword and keep his weapon close at hand. And what Paul's saying is, what does this for the believer is truth, like God's truth, God's objective truth. Nothing protects you better from deception than truth. And the more you not only know God's truth, but you believe God's truth, you trust God's truth, you know, what would have worked in the Garden of Eden when the deception comes and she's like, or Satan's like, God, God's not as good as he could be. She could have fought back and said, no, no, he's better than I could ever imagine. He's like, that's not going to harm you. Well, God said it is. So I trust God. That's his truth. And it's that simple in life that we need to know God's truth. By the way, it, it is God's truth. It is not, it's very common in our culture today to say like, well, that, that's your truth. This is my truth. I mean, that's cute. But there, there's really just truth. He's not saying gird yourself with your truth, your version of what's real to you. He's saying you need to know what is corresponding to reality and gird that on and that protects you. Next, the breastplate of righteousness. That breastplate, obviously that huge metal piece, some of them had some flexible components to them, some of them did not. But obviously that's the big piece that protects your vital organs from like a sword or a knife or an arrow that's flying at you and can deflect some of that. And I want to just point out that as he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, what he's talking about is not primarily your righteousness, my righteousness, He's primarily talking about the righteousness of God. Theologians call this imputed righteousness. Like, do you know what this is? Imputed righteousness. It's the idea that, like, where you and I have not conformed our lives to God's standard, we've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark with our lives, but Jesus didn't. And as he came to earth and as he lived and he's obeying his earthly parents and his heavenly father, and he's walking in the word. He always did those things that please God. And then part of his gift of salvation is saying, I give you my righteousness. I'll take your sin. That's why he's dying on a cross. But he's saying, but I'll give you my righteousness. I'll credit my good to your account. And family, nothing protects you more than this righteousness of God. Because as God looks at you, he's like, you're safe because you've put your faith in Jesus and I'm literally the one that is covering you with my righteousness. You don't have to be like Adam and Eve, like where's the fig leaves? I gotta, I gotta cover myself with fig leaves. He's like, I'm covering you with this armor plate of my goodness, my righteousness, my justice 
for you. The third piece here is these shoes of gospel readiness. You can see the Roman soldiers' shoes were leather, open-toed sandals, basically, that they had leather straps that you would lash around the calf to actually hold them on. I think the interesting part that I discovered here is, in studying this is that the key feature of the Roman soldier's shoe or sandal is that they actually had nails that were embedded in the bottom of them that worked much like golf spikes or like cleats today. And the idea is they're, they're not great for like running fast. You know what they're great for is standing your ground. Like they dig in and you're in hand-to-hand combat and you're not sliding backwards because these sandals, these shoes are digging in and enabling you to stand firm and to fight back. Well, Paul says that what does that is the shoes of gospel readiness or the readiness given by the gospel of peace. He's saying it functions like that. First of all, notice it's, it's gospel. Gospel means good news. Well, what's the good news? It's good news of peace. Peace, first of all, with God. You're not going to slip back in this cosmic battle because, friend, as, as we just as we just celebrated with the passing of the peace, you have already been reconciled to God by the work of Jesus. You already have peace with God, but then it's also the peace of God. And the idea there that as as you're locked in conflict, as you're locked in chaos, as you're all experiencing various trials, you don't have to fall back and lose your faith. You can stand ground because you have the peace of God, the shalom, the total sense of well-being, like, yes, these things are raging in my life or raging in my thoughts, or I'm afraid of the future, but I have the peace of God. Fourthly, the shield of faith. This artist has depicted this well, that the Romans actually had two different shields. One was a small round shield that would be used if you were like running fast and engaging in individual like hand-to-hand combat. But this was the typical shield of the Roman soldier, and it's the Greek word that Paul uses here, so we know what he's talking about. It's a shield. They were four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. They were made from wood covered with fabric, covered with leather, and then trimmed on the outside with metal, and there often was that metal insignia in the middle that they would, as they see like a sword coming, they would try to deflect that, not with the leather, but with the metal. Interesting enough, though, you may have seen pictures of this. There's like a phalanx You've seen these like soldiers that actually stand shoulder to shoulder with these swords or with these uh, shields. And the further and further they get back in the rows of soldiers, they're actually taking their shields and instead of just protecting you from what's in front of you, like a wall of shields all around you, they would turn their shields upward so that the soldiers in front of you and behind you are protected from those flaming arrows that are being lobbed from a distance. So you're, it's like there's a wall in front of you, there's a ceiling over your head, and there's this great measure of protection. And Paul says here that the shield is faith. He's saying simply trusting God protects you like that. Trusting God that, that his promises are true, that his character is true, that his good news is, is real for you. And what he's saying is as these flaming darts come and they're deadly... That temptation is deadly, that accusation is deadly, that deceit is deadly, that, that internal slander that causes you to maybe even walk into church with shame is deadly. But the faith keeps you safe. 
And by the way, this is a great place to tell you that, that all these words that Paul is using here, when he says, you put on this, and you put on this, and you put on this, it's the, it's the collective you. You know, in, in Greek is as many languages where you can just look at the word and know, is he talking like singular you, like you need to put this on, or is he saying y'all need to put this on? And it's, it's the Greek y'all. Take the shield of faith. And again, I think that he, he's even better picturing the way the Roman army actually worked, where it's like, not only am I protecting me, but I'm helping to protect you, and you are helping to protect me. And this is why we're family. Because there are times where your faith is up and down, and you need to get on the phone, or you need to sit down face-to-face -face with a friend and say, I'm struggling today. And their faith, it's not that they can have faith for you, but, but it's not like, oh, I believe in you. It's, I believe in God's work in you, and I see it here, and I see it here, and let's talk through this so we're trusting God together. And it creates this really beautiful picture of how we are meant to protect each other by faithfully living in Christian community. Next, you have the helmet of salvation. The helmet was this metal bowl, basically lined with fabric or leather to, to soften you know, its impact on your brain, not just feel like this metal on your head. Um, obviously protecting you from hand-to-hand -hand combat, like a sword that comes down on you or a knife that comes down on you or some of those things flying at your head from a distance, rocks or arrows. But this is the helmet of salvation. And I think Paul is sharing with us, this is your ultimate protection because we're talking about your head. We're talking about the control center for your whole body. As we talked a number of weeks ago, the head usually is the thing that the rest of the body works to protect. Like you would sacrifice an arm to protect your head. In, in biblical language, the head actually sacrificed himself for you, the body. But he's saying your ultimate protection is not your righteousness. Your ultimate protection in this conflict of life is not your faith. It is simply the fact that the Lord has saved you and will save you. And elsewhere, Paul writes this, that if God chose you and justified you, which is like declared you righteous, and he's sanctifying you, and he will glorify you, it's like, I can look at this whole story of my redemption and yours from beginning to end and say, this is the work of God's grace in my life. No one can stop it, not even me. I mean, my son leaned over to me this morning when we were reading, like, no power, not height, not depth, not anything in all creation can, can overcome, can take this away. And he said, not even scoring a goal on my own team in hockey this morning. That can't take it away. And if you need to apply it that way, like what, where is my shame coming from today? Where is the thing that I thought like, oh man, I'm a fool, I'm an idiot. I'm, I'm not worthy to be a part of this family of God. It, it's, not, it's not true. So this helmet of salvation that God is doing this work, that's what protects you. Um, now, finally, with this last piece of armor, we actually switch to armament, the sword of the spirit. You can see double-edged sword, two to three feet in length, was the standard Roman sword. Um, it could be used like to deflect, to protect, but let's not make any mistake. The main purpose of a Roman sword was to kill. It was an offensive weapon. And Paul says, your sword is the word of God. 
God's word is your sword. God's word is not only your defense. God's word is how you flip the script and you go on the offense against Satan and you put him on his heels. And I think nobody demonstrates this better than Jesus himself. You know that, that story in the gospels of Jesus, the 40 days of fasting. And at the end of that, when he's at his weakest and probably most vulnerable, just humanly speaking, the adversary comes to him and starts telling him lies and starts slandering and starts tempting. And each time, how does Jesus himself fight back? He quotes scripture. And so this is, the idea here is not just like, uh, you know, here's my sword, like the whole Bible. Like you just, it's not, it's not like that. It's, that. it's that you know individual messages of the Bible. You know for particular temptations, particular slanders, particular deceptions, you're like, my, not only my defense against what you're lying to me about right now is knowing something very specific in the word of God, but it's actually like, I'll put you on your heels, Satan. And I got no qualms at all about saying, like, I, I don't have the power to kill Satan. Um, but, but I'm fine with the church saying we are, we are sick and tired of demons and demonic activity, and we will go on the offensive against it. We will take the word of God and the good news of God to people so that they have the power not only to fight back, but to put the demons on their heels and make them run and go somewhere else. By the way, demons are territorial. You can read that in the Bible. So when they're like, okay, we have to leave that person, but can we take the pigs and run them off the cliff? And then they just show how destructive they are. They got to go somewhere else then. Let's fight back. Let's know God's word. Let's trust God's word so that we have it to fight back. So that's the adversary. That's the armor and armament. Now, don't worry. I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through. Two, two of four points. But these last two, I promise. All I want to show you really, like very briefly, is just the tension and balance between God's responsibility and our responsibility. Okay? So the third major point here is our ability. And I'll just get right to the point. We don't have any ability in our own to defeat Satan. We don't, we don't have the ability. Like when I just asked the question, like, where are you being deceived? And again, it, it sounds kind of funny because we're like, I, I, I don't know. Because if I knew, I probably wouldn't be deceived, right? So what ability do you have on your own to fight back even against the deception? When he's coming to you and he's slandering you to you, he's accusing you to you. And he's like, you're such a hypocrite. Like, you're like, mm, God, this is the last time I'm going to do this. Please forgive this. I won't ever do it again. And then you do it again. He's like, you're a loser. God deserves better than you. Why don't you just come with me? And you're like, yeah, I'm a loser. I should just, I'm just saying like we in our own strength. And it's like we sang it in Martin Luther's, a mighty fortress is our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We don't have the ability but praise God for verse 10, where he says, you are strong in God's strength. God's not like, all right, I gave you the equipment. Have a good life. He's like, no, no, no. Like, I'm not just sending you out there on the battlefield with good stuff. I'm going on the battlefield with you and in you and for you. We are strengthened by God's power. We are also protected by God's armor. And as I shared earlier, it's not just here's good stuff that's about your size. It's this is the armor that God himself wears to be God. And he's like, put it on. Okay? 
how often do we instinctively turn to other things besides the power of God at work in us and then the armor and armament he's provided for us? Like, we, we come into conflict, we come into chaos, and we're like, I'll fall back on my experience, I'll fall back on something I know, I'll fall back on something that's worked for me before, I will fall back and functionally trust money to fix this, or I'll change some habits in my life to get healthier to fix this, or I'll just, we can, we can even use the word of God in some mystical sense of like name it and claim it, instead of taking the time and making the effort to clothe ourselves with God's armor, his truth, his righteousness, his peace, his faithfulness, his salvation, his word. We are protected by God's armor. That's God's responsibility. God has to do that for us, and he does. So finally, our actions. What's our responsibility? Well, a few different times here, Paul says, put on God's armor, imperative. It is, it is no good in the world that the, you know, the storehouses of God are full of this stuff, like infinitely full. He has plenty of truth, plenty of righteousness, plenty of salvation. Paul's like, great, now put it on. And by the way, putting it on is an admission of weakness. It's like, I know I'm deficient. I know I can't just go into battle on my own with my own resources and expect to come out alive. So I'm going to put it on. I'm just saying, have the wisdom and humility to admit I'm under attack. I'm instinctively turning to things that will not deliver me. Let me, I would even meditate on this and journal through this this week of like, God, what would it look like to put on your truth with this specific temptation, with this specific accusation, with this area of shame in my life, with this area where culture's saying this is right, and I used to think your Bible said that was wrong, but these people are very convincing that that's actually good. What would it look like to put on truth? What would it look like to put on salvation? What would it look like to put on Christ's righteousness, etc., etc.? So put on God's armor. And secondly, stand firm in God's strength. Four times here, Paul says, stand. Withstand in the evil day. Stand firm. Stand saying, God has given you everything you need to succeed in this battle, so stand. Man, I, if, if you could look at the footprints, I'm, I'm just visualizing this. Again, it's a metaphor, but if you could visualize the footprints of a soldier of Jesus Christ, by the way, tiny excursus, let's not do the crusades thing, because what did he say? Like, your enemy is not that flesh and blood person who's, who's even maybe possibly very, very wrong. So the, the idea is not to equip myself with this stuff and go attack that person, go attack these people. It's go attack evil. Go fight back against the devil. Okay, now back to footprints. The soldier's footprints, they should never look like this, like retreating and walking, like turning your back and walking away because he says Stand. So I, I picture, like, if you could look at, like, streaks in the mud of where you're like, all right, God, I am digging in. I'm taking this posture. And something may be pushing you back, but you're like, I am standing my ground in my faith, in what the Bible calls righteousness, in what the Bible says is true. And, and as you're, like, feeling that 
push, ah, is this overcoming me and I want to turn and run or just change my mind and just agree with everyone. Um, I picture this, this last climactic scene of battle from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Watched it again over the weekend and it just like raises the hair on my arms, like gives me chills. Of this battle where, you know, Peter, the four kids that have entered Narnia through the wardrobe, and now they're princes and princesses and they're fighting this battle, courageously fighting this battle against the white witch and all her evil minions who have turned the place cold and dark and it's twisted and depraved. And she represents these demonic adversaries of Aslan, the lion, the king, the lion of Je He's the Christ figure, right? And they're going into battle with all this courage and gusto and they are fighting and they are falling and they're causing some of the enemy to fall. And then th there's this place in the battle where the white witch is just like, boom. And like, all right, force field gone. And she just starts whipping everybody. And they realize like, wait, we're fighting for the king and, and, and we're losing, we're, we're falling back. And like there comes a point where they are turning and they're running away in retreat of like, I guess, we, I guess we lost. And simultaneous to this, what they don't know is like Aslan, who's laid down his life for Edmund the traitor, has now resurrected and he's on his way to this battlefield. And they are beating this retreat and all of a sudden Aslan appears on this high rock overseeing the entire battlefield and just roars. And bam, everybody turns around and stands firm. The only thing that happened, the only thing that changed was the lion came. Well, friends, in your life, as followers of Jesus, the lion has already come, okay? It's, it's not like stand in your own strength and prove how much better you are than the other Christians because you're standing more. No, you have access to the same God, the same Jesus, who's like, stand firm. I am here fighting this battle. And it's his presence that turns the entire thing. Stand firm. And then very lastly, what's our responsibility? Verse 18, pray in God's spirit. And he's just saying constant prayer is a way of remaining vigilant, keeping alert. You can have all the armor and the Armor, armament, the weaponry in the world, and still lose if you fail to cry out in dependence on God. And Paul is saying for himself, as, you, as I pray for you and I intercede for you, I want you to do the same for me, that I would have clarity about the message that I need to preach, even from a prison cell, that I would have conviction, that I would have courage to preach as God has called me to preach. And I mean, again, he's just saying, like, how do I win this battle? It's not just, well, put on the right equipment and go win the battle. That's a part of it. But you put on the right equipment and you stand firm and you pray, actively depending on God to work in and through you. The adversary is committed, absolutely committed, to tearing down everything that Jesus is building. Okay, if Jesus is light, the adversary is darkness. If Jesus is truth, the adversary is lies. If Jesus is unifying and reconciling one family, one body through his blood, the adversary is sowing division and discord and animosity and suspicion. If Jesus purifies, the adversary putrefies 
defiles, twists everything. If Jesus brings clarity, the adversary sows chaos and confusion. But I want to be very clear in closing. We are fighting a battle that God in Christ has already won. It's not just that we're waiting for him to win. He's already won. On the cross, it says he is openly triumphing over these powers of darkness because they never saw that like, wait, 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 wait. God is going to take on flesh and then take the sins of his people on himself and he's going to die for their sins. So as I accuse them of these sins, you're like, yeah, I know about that, but it was already washed. It's already forgiven. The debt's already been paid. You have no accusation left, Satan. Satan has no accusation left, period, if you're a follower of Jesus. He's already won, but we have a battle to fight. So it's like what Jesus did to Satan by by stomping on his head was mortally wounding to Satan. He will not recover. And yet, like the the illustration that always comes to mind as I think about this is um, this camp I used to work at in North Carolina had a lot of venomous snakes. Um, Sometimes we'd be setting up for games on the field and we would find them like tucked in little places around the edges of the field. They they don't do anything good and they, they can bite the campers. And so what one of these guys would do that ran ops is he would cut their head off. And he'd, he'd put the head in a little styrofoam cup, and we did this often. Here's the head of a copperhead in a cup. Is it dead or is it alive? Its head's cut off. It's dead. But, but take, a, take a long grass or take a stick and poke it. You know what it does? It lashes out and bites you. So he's like, your, your adversary has been mortally wounded, he's, but he's not to be trifled with. You don't sit there and play with him. You don't sit there and give in and be like, oh, I wonder how dead he really is. It's like you just go on and stand in your victory, not underestimating him, but also not overestimating him. You just arm yourselves with God's resources, trust God's presence, and go engage in this battle and see God win over and over again in your life.